Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. This week I spoke with the gorgeous, the incomparable, the beautiful, the glorious Robert McFarlane. Robert is a writer and fellow of Emmanuel College, Cambridge. He's known for his books on landscape, nature, place, people and language. He is the author of Underland, my favourite book at the moment, and Mountains of the Mind, a history of fascination. Underland it's well cool. It's got other guests from this podcast in, like Merlin Sheldrake. He goes on an experience in Epping Forest with uh, Merlin Sheldrake, other under the skin guests. Banter decanter. So if you don't recommend Merlin Sheldrake. No, I'm recommending Nick Hayes. That's all you've recommended. And what about Bradley Garrett? He's also friends with Bradley Garrett. It's Bradley true. Garrett, Nick Hayes, they're all friends, all these guys. And I want to be friends with them, Jen. And if you get in the way. With these friendships, I I, will... I was helping your your Nick's friendship. How? I put him as a suggestion. I would like. Friendship. And Bradley's already. I've emailed him going, look how good this video is on you? YouTube. Yeah. Well See? done. What did you say? You know, give Russell a ring. They probably think you, that they, you don't want to hear from them. I do want to. I want to be friends with them Nick because you think Merlin. they'll look after you in the apocalypse. Mm, no, I would in the apocalypse. I'm not going to go for those. Uh, like, they're going to nice. go for Jocko. I, I hang out with them. <laughs> Jocko. Yeah, yeah. In the apocalypse, there's there's Jocko. Oh no, there's an apocalypse. We're going to need people that write really good books. No, the time for writing books has passed. We had our chance to write books, formulate ideologies. We blew it. Jocko, now it's Jocko. But you're time. ruining the friendship thing. I love you guys, <laughs> and up until the apocalypse, there's no one closer to me than thee. But post the apocalypse, Jocko. Jen, what have you been doing this week? Uh, mm, I've thrown I've, you, haven't I? I've thrown um, you because you've done nothing. Me, have you been I've playing been, with that dog? Have you spoke to Justin? Say, yeah. Have you got, what, what did you talk about? Life. Life? Broad <laughs> and generic. Maybe, 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 maybe your next Swiss trip. When are you going? Don't go to Switzerland again. Everyone else is getting a You're holiday. You're on the red list. No, I'm not. Now, look, this episode of Rob McFarlane, he's so beautiful. He's a great educator. He's a great teacher. You're going to love it. Before we get into that, let's listen to some... Uh, we've got no comments because Jen just couldn't be bothered. She's been drinking, so there's what? no comments. I've been drinking less, actually. Oh, Why? Because I've been driving to the pub. <laughs> this is time for a yellow banana. <laughs> Julie Groves says, Yes, I am an under-the-skin podcast junkie. Some addictions are good. Yes. Susan Walsh says, I was fascinated by the conversation you had with Gabor Matty regarding Israel and Palestine. It was refreshing to hear a measured and compassionate perspective, especially from a Jewish Holocaust survivor. I'm an American Jew, but I do not want to have blinders on when trying to work out an opinion regarding this, what seems like an endless conflict. Well, let's hope that there is an end. But before we try to tackle the complex issues of the Middle East, why don't we delve into the great mind of Robert McFarlane, shall we, Jen? Yes. Make sure you sign up to a mailing list, you lot, and listen to my podcast and Revelation and meditate on Above the Noise. That's all I need from you now. Enjoy Robert McFarlane. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that, route. Yes, that, that, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand. Under the skin. Thank you for coming on uh, Under the Skin, Robert. I'm really grateful to you. I'm I'm really happy to be here. I've got a big buzz, big smile on my face. Yeah, thank you. I mean, you you saw my assessment of you within seconds, but it was that you were a, <laughs> a, a lovely person. I based it on giddy instinct, but like. Um, <laughs> 
uh, the compliment I was about to give you, and I thought like that we might as well include in the podcast, was that there are some writers I read as a kind of, and not that many actually, that I read as a kind of um, sc- for schooling and for nourishment. And I felt like, you know, most notably, and, and this is hardly a rarity, for David Foster Wallace. And like when I was reading uh, Underland, your book, uh, um, I felt the same thing. I thought, oh my God, I was, I've been reading bits of it to my mum, reading bits of it to my wife, uh, drawing pictures of it for my children, therefore, and two. Wow. <laughs> so I was really <laughs> affected by Underland. I was affected by, I, I really enjoyed, the, the obviously, the, the, the sophistication and beauty of your prose, but also that it was uh, married to practical exploration while continually investigating the mythic resonance mm. of those physical and practical actions. Um, like I know that what your history is, is that you sort of like, I mean, I think I understand. Are you a mountaineer <laughs> that writes books? I mean, what are you? <laughs> uh, uh, what says John Muir, the, the Scottish-born environmentalist? He had to hyphenate everything. So he was like a poetico-geologico-ornitho-tramp, uh, <laughs> philosopho-poet. Anyway, I don't, I, don't, I don't get all of those, but I hyphenate a few. Yeah, I guess mountaineer, writer, teacher, that's probably where the, where the hyphens lead, but then they lead underground as well. Yeah, and I, I really loved it. I mean, there's um, we've had uh, Merlin Sheldrake Yay. on the podcast. He's another brilliant and articulate person. And I loved that section in the book where you were in oh. Epping Forest mm. with him. Uh, what I like about the sort of tone of your book was the uh, intimacy and immediacy of your writing, the realness of the experiences that you're undertaking. Um, could you so so that it's just this podcast isn't me telling you how much I like <laughs> your book and why? Keep, Can keep it going. It's uh, fine. I'll, I'll sit here for an hour and a half. Very happy. <laughs> um, I think I could feel an hour and a half. But like, I, I wonder if um, yeah, if you would tell us what it is that uh, what is unique about this book in your own writing history, what it was you were um, undertaking and mm. what you were endeavouring to achieve, because it seems like a book with incredible scope, both uh, f- like practically, i.e. the things you did, but also in terms of what you were explaining in terms of the uh, uh, allegory between mm. uh, un- the spaces underneath and the mm. surface spaces. All right. Yeah, well, thanks. And undertaking is a, is a good word for it. Um, it's lovely to hear you talk about it like that, Russell. Um, it really is. And... Um, uh, yes, yeah, a couple of years since, three years nearly since I finished it. I finished it just, do you remember those Thai, Thai children, the Thai football team who got stuck under the mountain? Wow, yeah, I do. Uh, so I was writing the last last sentences as that was happening. And it's another of those stories that feels like it's, it's right on the border of myth. You, you talked about mythic resonance early, but so many of the underworld stories just live, live on that borderline between brutal matter and uh, echoing myth. Um, but yeah, I started on the mountains. I think that's that's probably the, where it all began. I started as high as you can go, as light as you can go, <laughs> um, in a way as kind of self-absorbed as you can go. Mountaineers are in love with themselves and they're in love with oblivion as well. And then 20 years on, I've ended up going into the darkness and uh, that, that took much longer and was much more mysterious. Uh, we, we've, we've, we've gone under the earth for longer than we've been humans like you and me i think that's the first thing to say like we've only been climbing mountains 300 years but we've been burying our dead since before we were homo sapiens 
when you but the book begins with a series of in, encounters or anecdotes about yeah. subterranean spaces some of which are like sort of paleolithic and mm. others are like relatively recent and some i imagine or one or two i imagine sort of a personal mm. what, what was the nature of, why did you do what was you doing there what was that device um yeah it's the strangest way i've ever begun a book and it, it took me about a year to write the first 20 pages so um and i think we live in deep time like we live we're humans we live 70 years 100 years if we're unlucky and um but but we 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 exist within a 4.5 billion year mesh of of life making and uh deep deep time goes far older than our species far older than all species uh and that's that's what makes the the crust we walk upon and the core that binds us to it with with gravity and so if you're going to tell the story <laughs> if you're going to set out on the ridiculous task of trying to tell the story of the underworld then you need to be able to break time and that that was a device to break time to take us back you know to limestone forming on the beds of tropical seas i'm speaking to you from chalk i'm stand, i'm sitting on chalk that was formed 99 million years ago when the dead bodies of tiny organisms with calcium in their bodies rocked down in their billions and trillions of billions and formed the chalk and all the way through to our future as a species because we're burying nuclear waste now that will be you know toxic for tens of thousands of years to come we're we're, we're shaping an anthropocene future for humans as yet unborn and species as yet unimagined so um i needed to be able to move around in time like that oh man like i suppose as soon as you start talking about this robert it makes me appreciate the kind of necessary dislocation that has to take place i.e we can't be expected to um uh, understand uh, uh, with history on that scale like millions and trillions of life forms calcium like you know like the you know i.e the sort of the geology and this the sort of truth of chalk and also i suppose what it points to is something in our site the kind of choices we're making now whether consciously or not about and, and what that reveals to us about our attitude towards the future in burying toxic waste that that, that will have consequences millennia away. Yeah, I, that's right. I love that phrase, the truth of chalk. Um, chalk's what we chalk's what we write with as well, isn't it? I'm sitting on an enormous pencil, basically a kind of a reef of reef of writing material here. So, um, but yeah, we're not. Our brains are not configured very well across time scales bigger than a well politicians brains aren't configured very well over timescales bigger than the next, you know, the next election term. Um, and that's a real problem as we try and devise better, fairer futures for, for our species and others. I grew up opposite a disused chalk pit. I'm from a place called Grays in Essex. And uh, across the road from our street, there was like a, there was these abandoned kind of bunkers and abandoned former quarries that had been reclaimed by nature. Newts were abundant there. I don't know what the actual size and scale of the place was because I was a boy, but it yeah. was a it was a world to me, and it felt like it had its own discrete ecologies within it. I.e., there were bits of forestation, bits that were like red, barren sands, sudden edifices. It was like a, an extraordinary place and, and frequently a sign would appear 
development coming, <laughs> development coming, and, and fences would go up. And eventually it did happen, and now that place is Chafford 100. It's a sort of a banalised and flat, asphalted world now. And in my personal mythology, it sort of looms large and heavy mm. with nostalgia even to recall it when I think of my own childhood as I'm my only child and it was kind of, a, I guess I'm a sort of solitary person. And like the, 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 it was in a sense the only place of solitude that didn't feel corrosive or toxic to me. It felt like an interface where it was all right to be me, like that, was that, that place. And was that because you were like hard up against time and i'm not that you put it to yourself like this as a kid but but is it because you 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 were part of something much bigger than yourself even and something and things that were much smaller than yourself these micro ecologies these tiny jungles and then the chalk i don't know what what, what was it that made you feel it safe felt, there it felt beautifully unbounded and it felt free it felt free and i so so i suppose yes of course there's no it's obviously i'm not it's not an objective assessment of the place but i guess how it operated in my psyche is a kind of casual panacea that was just a, across the way there and yeah i really really loved it and I, i'd not sort of really um thought about that in connection to underland or that uh, that particular neologism and uh, others like i think did you invent anthropocene also is that <laughs> no i didn't uh i'd uh I'd, i think i'd like to be able to say i did maybe i wouldn't no that was paul crutzen uh well actually it was probably a late 19th century italian theorist but that's another story but anyway crutzen um uh, a chemist, uh, a, a sort of atmospheric chemist around 2000 um, comes up uh, with this idea. Yeah, the, the we need a new name for the epoch that we are mm. making. I see. Um, the Anthropocene. Thank you. I, I really enjoyed the, the way that you wrote each, if not chapter, then section of the book by introducing a new character uh, mm. to, as, or sort of an anointed, yeah, Virgil or guide for yeah. to sort of yeah. take you through these various... Um, schemas and uh like i want to talk a bit about like when you were in that that mine that had a lab in it where they just oh, yeah, yeah. where they analyzed them weekly interacting massive particles yeah. i've been thinking about that a lot and about the thing that the guy down there said about regarding ourselves as nets and how sort of inconceivable it is because mm -hmm. i guess that's what that what your book did and i guess what fascinated me about your book is how frequently and i'm not suggesting easily as an endeavor but easily at least when encountering the prose mm. it brings you up against the periphery of the unknown like continually mm. the tidal movement of the book is here mm. i am i'm just chatting to merlin shell drake we're in the woods ha 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 we're digging about there's some mushrooms and all fungi <laughs> jesus no, it, it put <laughs> me in jail for that kind of error <laughs> like and like um, and then suddenly it's <laughs> now we're suddenly it's morpheus and it's out of my hands you know so <laughs> It's like a, it's like a, a early Pantera album where it begins all pan pipes and then just goes, <laughs> just the bass guitar kicks in and goes mad. Um, uh, yeah, uh, that that would be the soundtrack. Um, yeah, well, I think I think every. I mean, if you take the example of the dark matter laboratory and the conversation I had there with the young physicist. So, dark. I was trying to explain this to my eight-year-old on on Sunday. Um, he wanted to know, he wanted to, he'd come across dark energy somewhere. I said, I don't know anything about dark energy, but I can try and explain dark matter to you. Um, and and, and I, I said, you know, the universe is heavier than we think. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's like an orange and we put it on the scales and the scales tells us it's one weight, but then, but then other things indicate it's about a quarter as heavy again. How do we, what, what how do we, where's it gone? And it won't, the, this missing mass won't interact with any of our 
technologies. We can't see it. We can we can we can only believe it's there. It's a faithful physics. It's a devotional science. And then suddenly having these these scientists and they they have to occupy their worshipful spaces, the cathedrals, the underground dark matter laboratories, uh, because and and I should say for those who don't you know because you read the book, those who don't know the science. Um, you have to go underground because a mile of rock is is what blocks out all the noisy atomic kind of traffic of 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 the of the baryonic world, the our world of kind of the stuff we sit on and touch and are made of. And and it, if you're down there and you're sheltered by a mile of rock, you might just, if you listen with the right ears, you might just be able to hear uh, a weekly interacting massive particle or a neutrino. And I was saying to my boy Will. He's at the end of the book. You met him a couple of times and the book. He's a bit older now. But I'm saying there are there are billions of these things pouring through us every second. Like to 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 them, we are we yeah, we're nets. We're fishing nets, but where the meshes are, you know, a galaxy wide. Each mesh is a galaxy wide. These things just pour through us. They don't even notice us as they come through us. And he's just kept going back to it as an idea. And that beautiful illustration of that from that little young physicist saying, you know, it changes the way I think about the world. Of course it does. But in a way, it makes it more astonishing to me that I can hold the hand of the person I love. And I just oh, I still get the tingles from that. Because it makes me consider that one of the challenges of our perception of reality is one of scale, the scales of time and this obviously this size and that there is a kind of peculiar collective subjectivity at play in that we are almost uh, constitutionally incapable of ascertaining the true nature of reality because of the limitations of our instruments and, and the assets that we have to even uh, accumulate that knowledge and to see it sort of explained in yeah scientific physical terms like that was again powerful how how did you how do you make those do you make those <laughs> my next question was almost on the brink of going how do you write a book like <laughs> how do you make it like when you're I'm guessing that you sort of go all oh, right I know these people over there and sort of near Sarajevo or Croatia or wherever that bit is with the sort of the neo-nazi stuff yeah I know this stuff over here with the catacombs how is it that you corral together that kind of content how is it that you uh, build the image system of you know mm. and make those kind of mythic and psychoanalytic mm. um i suppose those two things are inextricable in a way but uh, how do you how do you um how do you what is your process with a book like this yeah well uh very slow that's the first thing to say like eight years uh something like that um my books keep getting longer in time and longer in in page i mean i really need to write a, sh a, sh a like a, a poem or something um i do a bit of that as well but anyway this one's 500 550 pages i've got to i've got to cut down but I, they write they I mean, they are organic. The underland, like one of the earth uh, structures of the underland, and it's there in every story that you you'll have heard. I think is that you go down in one place and you come up in another, right? There's a the, the tunnel entrance leads you into darkness. You pass through a test of some kind, and then you emerge on the surface or into a different world. And in, I wanted the book to be like that. It didn't have to follow causal continuities because that's absolutely not what the book is about it's oh well at first I met this person and then 
this series of Newtonian decision-making processes led me to that. But no, I wanted the, the reader to feel they'd entered a, a, an, under, an underground labyrinth and that they took a right turn and pushed through a door and, and they were in Arctic Norway trying to work out why Bronze Age hunter-gatherers had gone to a, a sea cave next to a maelstrom to make dancing red figures on the walls. Um, and that seemed true to what I was interested in. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does, that you had made some decisions that seemed like sort of configured around motifs of like transition yes. and transformation. And I kind of wonder how you happen upon that, how you go from being, um, you know, a mountaineer and sort of, and you sort of suggested there was a kind of narcissism in mountaineering and a, I suppose an introspection or, or in, spirit of inquiry somehow. What Can mm. you unpack that a little bit, please, what the distinction is and how you think those, how you think that forms in that way? Yeah, well, I mean, the peak, peak, narciss peak mountaineering narcissism is... Everest summit on on or around May the fifteenth on a normal year, where you know you'll have two hundred climbers queuing in the death zone, waiting to take the summit selfie um, in their in their down cocoons. And you know, for all all those people, will have their stories for how they've got there, and many of them are very are very moving. And I'm not uh, I, I'm not um, disparaging kind of individual achievements, but the but the the, the Everest industry is mountaineering's narcissism concentrated down to a, a fatal, often and always unequal set of processes. So you get um, Sherpa, Sherpas who, who make a great deal of good money from the work that they do, and, and, and that goes to the families in a, in a poor nation of, of Nepal, for example. But they're the ones who take commensurate excess risk as they move up and down the Khumbu Icefall, carrying the load, setting the high camps and so on. And then so there's something about that, you know, the summit selfie and the queue for it at 8,848 metres or whatever it's measured at now that I just, it just makes my soul prickle and my, my spirit stomach turn. So that's not the mountaineering I'm interested in and I never have been, although I felt a bit of it when I was a young, young climber, young mountaineer. But the underworld is all about humbling. It's all about loss of orientation. It's all about surrender to forces and ages and substances and contexts that are um uh that, that, are, that are far greater than you and there's that in the mountains too but uh, you know the classic mythic descent the catabasis uh the which we see replayed in greek and, and roman myth and indeed in, in in indigenous stories is of the descent into darkness the the discovery of through arduous motion and encounter of knowledge and then the return to the surface with that knowledge where it has to kind of be be understood how it, how it can be applied on the surface. And we see it again and again. Uh, and I, I love that idea that a humbling, a confining, a constraining actually is a means of, of seeing in the end. How do you mean? Well, uh, for example, uh, uh, to, to, I became fascinated by this echo. So Bruno Latour says we've never been modern. So um, this, this, this idea that we continue to think of ourselves in a state of exception, but actually we find ourselves repeating errors and thought experiments from, from the past. Well, let's give one example of that. So um, the, the, the Oracle at Delphi uh, uh, and the Sibyl at Cumae are both strong female prophetic figures who draw their knowledge of the future from 
from under the earth. Vapors arise um, from a crack in the earth, uh, and and they use they use this subterranean knowledge to to give prophecies to the male rulers who are basic basically idiots and don't know what to do with it. Um, now we're doing the same. We're 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 delving back. Glaciologists are drilling million year old ice core in order to retrieve climate data that they can tell to idiot politicians about what is going to happen in our climate future. So delving down, you retrieve knowledge, you bring it to the surface, you use it to foretell the future and you try to communicate, communicate it to the people who should listen. And generally they don't listen. That's kind of what myth tells us over and over again. So glaciologists are looking at the, the Eemian period at the moment very intensely because it was a period of rapid warming which looks quite a lot in the ice core record like what what we're in now and what's coming up yes i understand robert with your um point about uh the sort of uh that it makes your kind of skin crawl and your soul prickle to envisage the commodification of the summit of everest is it kind of because it's a a, a curious um, bringing down, a curious rarefication, a, a curious kind, like an extraction of the sublimeness and a, a kind of s sort of um, literal conquering of peaks and mysteries, a, a, a claiming territory that could be divine, but only in the most overt and clumsy ways i was thinking about like i mm. wonder if this is more of a literary question than anything else i suppose like i wonder why in some myth systems it would be a forest would be what you would go in to reclaim that knowledge or, or have that encounter mm. sometimes i suppose it's a cave with a dragon in it or whatever mm. um I, mm. I do do you draw any distinction between those myths and, and the and the and then the nuance of those two image systems um, there's such there's two I guess there's two parts to that question. They're both super interesting. And the first is you, well, you sort of said it better than I could. Yeah, it's the rarefication. You know, why why does everyone have to stand on the top of Everest? There are you know ten ten thousand spectacular peaks in the Himalayas if you have to get there. Or um, uh, East Greenland has got you know another ten thousand, most of them unnamed. Um, so there's, there's that kind of weird human obsession with you know the further, higher, faster, and the maximum, and and, and all of that. And then uh, and then just the kind of sheer focused pressure of, of of resource use and disposal and detritus and all the rest of it, the, the bodies and the oxygen cylinders and the and the crap and and all of that. So I just I just find it weird. I just find it deeply weird. And 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 it's and yeah, the conquest motif, which is so strong in mountaineering, Western mountaineering for so long, and is just so grim. It's um uh, you know, we must own this this mountain. We must beat this landscape. We must we must conquer nature. Uh, and you know, <laughs> look where that's got us. But uh, so, and then the, I don't know. This uh, I want to know if you ever climb mountains, Russell. I know Essex isn't like big in terms of mountains. But no, so. but it really makes me want to. When well, so when you say that, not in a kind of like a Coca Cola is it version of climbing a mountain. The only thing I ever did that was remotely a bit like it was we went to the Lake District with my mate, and we sort right. of and it suddenly went from being a walk into something that required upper body strength without <laughs> sort of, in my opinion, sufficient warning <laughs> of what was happening. We were walking up something, and then it became fucking hell. I'm gonna have to haul myself <laughs> up this. But it was kind of magnificent. But like, yeah, I've. So I've not done much of it. It made me like it made me excited about that sort of uh, the that yeah trepid uh, intrepid excuse me spirit of exploration. Like when you were 
describing sort of creaking your skull down these little plate down these tiny spaces and suddenly finding yourself in some onyx desert and that i was thinking hell this sounds mental but i think i you know i would freak out a little bit when you were talking about mountaineering then i felt like i wondered if i could do it. it sounds like if you can if you can turn something into a tourist industry like that it's only one step away from a bungee jump somewhere like in the yeah course. yeah yeah exactly it's the yeah it's the upwards bungee jump it's the anti-grab bungee jump is everest yeah don't don't go for that but you sh- you know if if you when if you enjoyed that that little bit in the lake district I, I'll, I'll take you up a mountain oh my god yeah, really We'll go for we'll go for a Lake District climb one day. I mean, I'm so up for that. Get Nick Hayes and Merlin Sheldrake along. Um, both my besties. We can do a bit of trespassing. Oh, you know, yeah, yeah, you know Nick Hayes also. Oh yeah, he's he's an old student of mine and a dear friend now. So. Um, yeah, oh yeah, of yeah. course. I think you my... gave a quote for his book, eh? Hey? Yeah, yeah, he was. He, he's he's fantastic. He's yeah. Amazing. So he's re- rethinking access, as you know. I know he loved his conversation with you. I see that how the yeah the significance of your influence actually because uh, of course what he does as well is he um takes the idea of you know yeah walks and trespass and like it gets into colonialism f- f- through that yep. well. yeah that's yeah I, I, I yeah I can see the significance of that um like I suppose what I'm interested in now is how come mm. you went from like mountaineering and that kind of what what made you why specifically the underworld what drew you to that? Yeah, well, I think um, I look back at it and this is this kind of um, uh, this is retrofitting, I guess, but it, it had a sort of gravitational logic. I just kept heading downwards, so I started on the mountains and then ended up writing a book called The Wild Places, which was more about moors and forests and islands. And then I wrote a book called The Old Ways, which was about tracks and paths, which are the beginnings of the underworld in a way, because they're kind of beaten down into the land a little bit. And the deepest of them are called hollowways. That are, you get them on sandstone, green stone. They're hundreds of years old and basically water and wheels and feet have cut them, cut this soft rock, bedrock, up to 20 feet down into the landscape. So they're like they're like gorges and you enter them and it's you're entering a different dimension the shadow um they can't be farmed because they're too deep um gits in four by fours sometimes mash them up because they think that affirms their penis length or you know self-perceived masculinity uh green laners and off-roaders uh i just anyway it's another mindset i can't comprehend and and then just begin to you know and then that was the sort of portal transition zone was the holloway and then I also think it's something to do with being a bit older and, you know, the underworld's about graves and loss and burial and memory and grief and, all, you know, all the things that have circled all of us, uh, particularly the last 15, 18 months. I suppose one of the things that's obvious is that something that is so uh, to which uh, which is so close to us, adjacent with us, that uh, yes. that, that, that we literally stand on is so full of mystery there's something <laughs> of the sort of horror of psychedelics in it for me like not not the beauty the grace the enlightenment the epiphany of psychedelics but like my some experiences when i was younger where suddenly the certainty of self was uh cleaved and uh, cast asunder and i thought oh my god i'm not me i'm not me at all and it was there's mm. something terrifying about that i like in one of the early stories where you talk about you know you're having all these experiences and then you put your head up and I now recognise right you were somewhere else and like there's cars and people listening to the radio and they've got their <laughs> arm out the window and stuff like that yeah it's bewildering oh, it's, 
it's totally bewildering and color is color again like green i've never seen a greener green than the green i saw after two and a half days in the paris catacombs and somebody was somebody was playing music from one of the high windows i remember when we emerged from the catacombs and came out the old railway tunnel that we'd got access into it through and I'd never heard music like it, even though I, I had heard that music before. So it is the bardo, like it's the Tibetan bardo, the rebirth, where you pass through a a, a, a tunnel, a channel, uh, and and then and and that's a pilgrimage, but it's also a return to the surface. So yeah, and um, there's, yeah, you feel like you've stepped, you've come back from another world, and you have. And I give a I give a very specific example, like when the Chilean miners, those miners who got trapped, everyone, you know, that world fixating story. They, they came back from, all of them were saved, but they came back in a capsule one by one that was co-designed by the Chilean scientists and government and NASA. And it just made perfect sense. They were coming back from another galaxy, another world. The one we walk on, as you say, like an inch away from us is the rhizosphere. 10 meters away from us is bedrock. Um, you know, a few kilometers away from us is is deep crust. I mean, we we, we, we live in this tiny boundary layer between the the wildnesses of the upper atmospheres and the inconceivable darkness and forces of of the crust and the core. Because what you're dealing with in the book, and it seems more broadly in your writing, is where (laughs) an investigation into the unknown, how close to us the unknown is, how Mm. all the sovereignty of knowledge is surrounded on all sides by this kind of wilderness that may yet be unknowable it feels to me that um that sacredness mystery and religiosity are forever present in the writing Mm. do you are you curious about spirituality and religion and are you as like many people who i think are influenced retrospectively now by your writing do you what do you think about the idea that a kind of a, a, a reinvigoration of certain spiritual principles is what's required to sort of reawaken a, a, a kind of a, a reverence for one another for ourselves for the world it's it's a very beautiful question and at risk of collapsing its fragility i'm just going to say that someone started a leaf blower up in the next door garden so i'm just, i'm just going to shut the window to see if that keeps the noise down a bit and then i'll get back to spirituality hold on hello <laughs> i'm in a different mood now <laughs> I've changed. I'm no longer the person that I was before you closed that window. It's all gone. I will um I will convey our, our mutual complaints and triplicate to said leaf blower. And, and did, do you know uh, outraged of course. There's also no point um, in blowing those leaves. Oh well there it is. I mean the, the leaf blower. What what a ridiculous anyway, let's <laughs> I am gonna become a leaf leaf blower bloviator if you set me going on that one, but it doesn't sound like the angry old man I am. I've already done four by fours, what's happening to me? It's all about a combustion engine. Um yeah, I'd I mean I'm really interested to hear you on this, Russell. I know I mean you think you've thought a great deal about these things. I don't know. Uh, I think the, the, if I had to kind of print up the the, the the spirituality business card, it would probably say something like mis, mis, mystical materialist, um, which is to say, I'm, as, as we've already discussed, I'm kind of utterly fascinated by um, by how little we know um, and by by how the, the material world is forever astonishing us with its 
um, with, with its dark matter, let's put it like that, with the extent of its of its of its secrets. And we might take the example of the Wood Wide Web, um, the, the the mycorrhizal fungal network that you've discussed with Merlin that I write about in the book. You know, Western science discovered that through the work, pioneering work of Suzanne Samard about a quarter of a century ago. Indigenous cultures have known about it. They've, you know, it's been self-evident to them that trees talk to each other and have social networks for thousands of years. Um, dark matter, you know, our knowledge of that is a century old, but but really we we know we know nothing of it. So I think of us as these, you know, this arrogant species that wanders holding up a little flickering taper inside this immense cave and 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 think we can see it all when in fact we only illuminate a little patch on the on the wall uh, and then we and then we arrogantly work out hubristically work out from that so mystic in the sense that i i cherish ignorance um because i, I see it as a, uh, as a as a as a kind of impulse really um and and that i find miracles in the in the made world the given world um what what, what about you where what, particularly thinking about it in relation to sort of nature and the natural world i think about it in relation specifically to your book and i know that sort of um like merlin has been explicit about an irritation that i recognize in the rush to sort of mystify or claim on behalf of mystery or some new perhaps crystal encrusted drastic stinking dogma like oh look see we told you that the double blind experiment leads to this and like he said like you could have you know you could draw the idea that there are mother trees but that's so sort of anthropomorphic and sort of clumsy and agenda led and but what what i kept what i found in in your book like and i suppose what uh, excited me was like when whether you're talking about the relationships with sort of the characters in there like that couple you know that are in italy or wherever it was or or, or merlin or, or that woman in paris and like i feel like you played some really interesting games like a woman in a wedding dress and all the moths in paris and stuff I was like does this even really happen and I was trying to think about sort of as a writer the kind of uh, liberties that you may have taken and what you might have done with the timeline and stuff like that and like you know that you have to you're obligated to make sense of certain things as a writer with the kind of uh, what's um, you know with the requirements of the discipline I suppose but the thing that sort of it, it, it touched me on a kind of I suppose on a sort of a religious level is that the, the ongoing almost involuntary and, and not to um, diminish what you have done achieved as a writer how could I after all those quotes but like uh, sort of, it seemed like the sort of effortless correlative between mystery and the practical between the material and the mystery and like perhaps most um, gosh what word were to use in this context but most obviously in that sort of extraordinary story about the study of weekly interacting massive particles and you know i talked i talked about that to a few friends afterwards and it, like i felt like that you know like the, if that is a material physical reality that that's happening completely imperceptibly that we are yeah like you said we are living in a kind of virtual oblivion and the the, the that which can only be detected will have to necessarily become a, a part of our ethos you if what we're going to wait for is for everything to be rationalized measured materialized 
I, I feel like I know where the momentum of that idea is taking us. I feel where I know where rationalism is taking us. Materialism, consumer, consumerism, individualism, if that, you know, that we're going to have to evoke once more the mystery. And in your um, example of the oracles and the mm. reading of the vapours, and of course that is um, uh, delightfully analogous to the sort of geological studies that you cited, but uh, it, for me, is this a continual attempt to sort of um, squeeze the mystery through the toothpaste tube of rationalism that is part of the problem? That is mm. that that we I think that because because of the the hubris that I associate with materialism and rationalism, at least in terms of its practice and in terms of its results, I feel that there needs to be a kind of a surrender to nature, a kind of reverence for the the c- c- poetics that is discovered in an endeavor such as yours that oh my god this is exactly like going within oh, wow that's indistinguishable from that myth how are these patterns can why are these patterns continually iterating again and again why is that happening and to and in our attempts to understand it you know it's, it's there's you know necessarily a reductivism and in that i think we we lose the thing that is most beautiful and most necessary i what I do, what I think, what I most firmly believe, what I most strongly believe is that we, what is required is the reintroduction of reverence of the sacred into ordinary life, the acceptance of our limitations. I, I can't think of another, forgive the word, weapon that can be mobilized in the, uh, against this, these kind of oppressive forces. And it feels like much of the kind of class of people that I deal with are like, up for sort of to a point examining examining and exploring these ideas but not to the point where it gets all shamanistic and Rasputin like and crazy and for understandable reasons you know one way lies fascism another way a kind of giddy idiocy but like um I feel that we're going to have to start using these forces because I think the 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 alternative is becoming um more menacing Yes, well, I, I I'm with you, and I'm deeply interested in a- a- animism. So, what what might be a particular kind of contemporary animism? So, just just uh, if we think of animism as as the, the the beginnings of a resistance to a a rapacious model of consumer capitalism that sees all that is not human as resource as something that can be um, harvested, uh, transformed, and 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 sold as a uh, for the for the for the creation of value, um, that and animism and there are many traditions that, as you well know, kind of have have kept it in view and and, and central to the to the ways they they see and and, and are in the world, uh, recognizes a liveliness and um, a neighborliness and a co citizenship in 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 other beings and those beings may be ones that we kind of quite reasonably and. Uh, easily extend such uh, presence to, you know, the animals we share our lives with, but they might also be more complex phenomena or compound phenomena. You know, a river, is that alive? Is it sentient? Is it a being? Um, Merlin, Merlin, thinking about the way you know mycorrhizal fungi convert individual trees into intercommunicating forests. Well, it's an alien structure, but it's it's massively complex, and there's a huge amount going on in it. So I'm. I'm very interested in that interface between the ways we reimagine the being of the world. We can call it sacred, but but let's call it alive and liveness and aliveness. And then how increasingly how that interfaces with law, 
because there is there is a huge global um, emerging rights of nature movement which says look if this if if this stuff is is alive we need to recognize it as such and we need to we need to preserve it within a rights framework you got a big smile on your face because of course it's alive and of course it, and more than alive it's sort of non-separate it's not separate from us and of course if these are sort of detectable only by virtue of their consequence particles of the cosmos within which we are currently in interaction if that's happening now it's certainly possible plausible likely even given the uh the, the heritage and mythologies of like some of these indigenous people that were that encode reverence to these life systems in, in, in into their ethos that the river is in some way that's difficult for us to measure a living entity and and like that stuff that you say about deep time like that bit where there's a bit where you sort of say like where you describe some uh inner like alcove as if it's like going to collapse and it sort of is collapsing mm. but oh, yeah, in a different yeah. metric you know it would be collapsing if you moved much more slowly exactly, <laughs> you know? exactly. Um, yeah yeah like we're just moving through it differently peering at it from another dimension from another dimension and we are sort of yeah our devotion to our own dimension our self-centeredness our solipsism it like prevents us from being aware of the rhythms and movements of other uh, uh, other aspects of nature so like but again of course i suppose in order to protect the river you have to convert it into you know we must preserve it because of law but like again for me that's a further kind of like you know i'm, I'm not against it I'm for it but i'm just saying it's unfortunate it seems that the only way to re-engage reverence is through the machinery and tools of our current system and i'm reminded of that you know you can't dismantle the master's house using the master's tools i i, I, mm. I wonder mm. that no that you're I, i'm not an, a, a card-carrying advocate for the rights of nature movement at all and i think it's got a load of problems built into it some of which you've gone straight and identified or you know if we give if we let's say we give a river legal standing within a courtroom um does it does it have the right to sue well, if it has the right to sue does it have the right to be sued and also, who does the speaking for it? Who speaks for the river? Well, a human, probably. You know, does it? Does a river kind of uh, employ an advocate barrister to speak on their behalf? Well, then we're anthropomorphizing. Who's the interlocutor? You know, there are all these fascinating philosophical ontological problems. And yet, at the heart of it, is something that you and I, I think, share, which is that we fail sufficiently to recognise the aliveness of the world beyond our species as a species. And we're continually having a place something underground. I do jujitsu with my mate, and he was telling me like he like he goes, uh, I done this. Uh, he goes, I watched this. You know, he's watched one of those things like Cowspiracy or something, I guess. And he's saying like, do you, like he goes, I'm thinking of not drinking milk no more because of like you know they keep them continually pregnant and they inject them with all of that. And like I'm vegan, right? And like um. I feel like, yes, everything is underground. That's underground. All of these things are subterranean. Like, that everything is, uh, like, lacquered. There is a veneer across all reality that, like, it has to be kept there. It has to be preserved. We have to be corralled into these uh, sort of narrow furrows of reality not to be continually appalled. And, like, you know, when... 
you know, you describe, even though it's an entirely new myth, the idea of being continually being threaded by sub, sub, sub particular forms I can't, you know, even conceive of. When you when you talk about the the hand holding, it evokes something most familiar. Um, I felt this when, like, I started to learn more about meditation and when it became popular to talk about meditation in terms of the sort of mindfulness movement. Oh, look, it's good for your cardiovascular rate. Oh, it's good for your health. Uh, I felt almost incensed that he's like, well, what about these people that knew this for thousands of years? Do you think there are any other principles lying around in those sacred texts that might be of some use to us that we're ignoring so that we can steadfastly remain on this com- path of commodification and utilization? Well, the, the, the other problem is that you end up repeating the extractivist uh, model, but as soon as you approach other cultures' knowledges, uh, indigenous knowledge, or you sort of say, "Oh well, uh, we'll just head over here and we'll 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 mine what's useful from this knowledge system, and then we'll take it back and probably we'll sell it in some way." And <laughs> you know, w- where I come from in in academia, you know, I teach here here in Cambridge, and uh, I have a, a sort of it's a, it's really you've got to be just so careful in the way you approach and use. Uh, knowledge as a as a resource from other from other cultures and other communities. Well, I, I say where I come from, everyone 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 knows that, and everyone should should know that. But um, yeah, the, uh, Robin Wall Kimmer. I don't know if you've ever read Braiding Sweetgrass and and Gathering Moss. She's a she's a brilliant trained botanist. She's also a, a member of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation and. You know these two uh, tra- sort of trainings in indigenous knowledge and, and and Western plant science meet in her, and they braid. They braid to form sweetgrass. This beautiful. In fact, look here's some sweetgrass. This is what it looks like, and I wish you could smell oh, yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Do you know it? It's yeah, just, I've burned oh. some of that before. I feel. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, you can probably smell it down the down the fiber optic cable. It's so <laughs> fragrant and gorgeous. But um, yeah. So she and um, you know, Robin. Uh, uh, Robin talks about grammars of animacy. And I, she talks about ways in which even through language we can, um, I write a little bit about this actually in that Merlin chapter, that our language, our grammar is such a sediment of ideology, like it 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 it, it it's nature, English it's nature, it, it thingifies, reifies, resourcifies nature, and it's it doesn't recognise reciprocity and animacy. So I love the idea of finding ways of speaking as a writer, as a, you know, in conversation with someone like you, that that that, that that do possess some level of a grammar of animacy. Yeah, you quoted her, didn't you, at length in that chapter? And I think that you said that there was the, like there's some tribal people like their word for the river is rivering or something. It activates yeah. nouns or something. Yeah, exactly. The, you verbing verbing nouns bay. What we would say bay actually the the tautomi carries um car- carries action within it. And you know what a river? What could be more kind of present tense and gerundive and verbal than a river? Yes, 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 and and indicated in that language, of course, yeah, that by yeah by making it a verb, you endow linguistically the the subject with life. Yeah, yeah, that was beautiful and significant. Ah, oh, man, you you'd be a verb, Russell. You'd be like you wouldn't have a you wouldn't have a noun name. You should you should just like have a verb name. I mean, not. You know what I mean. You're just one. You're a river. You're a verb, right? I'm rustling currently. You're, you're uh, rustling. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like a good pile of leaves. Uh, we, I don't know where this is headed. <laughs> <laughs> it might not you're be looking good. Slight, 
It could catch Slightly fire. Slightly nervous now. <laughs> yeah. I should get that leaf blower, corral it into some safe corner. <laughs> this thing catches fire. We're all in a lot, of, a lot of trouble. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, look, this is what I sort of I have the sense of Robert when I'm doing these podcasts is that like if I have any you know function at all, then it is to take this uh, somewhat esoteric esoteric knowledge which you have already uh, beautifully conveyed in your work and see if I could further masticate it to. I can spit it into the mouths of absolute yobbos. And let's face it, that's the only way they'd take it. Coated in phlegm. <laughs> Certainly not between the pages of a book. Um, but like, and to sort of find, like, you know, like, you know, when we're talking about the um, appropriation or what did you say? You said something uh, brilliant. Uh, extractivist attitude towards sort of myths. Like, intention no like you know like uh, you know when you sort of uh, like my kids love that m movie moana which is bloody brilliant actually and then you sort of learn that you know hey you bastards you was like you know that they've been sort of clumsy and sacrilegious and how could they not be it's disney and stuff you know that they've been the, the way that those stories have been used where those figures have been portrayed but for, for reasons i would understand dramatically that if um the character of Maui, who is, you know, like Christ-like, even to make such a comparison, I recognise he's reductive, but like, uh, you know, certainly sacred in their culture. For him to have a dramatic journey, for him to change, he needs to, there needs to be deficit at the beginning. But to give a god a deficit is, you know... Uh, a, a, a kind of a problem and I suppose you know it's accepted that the intention of Disney is to make money that's that's the intention you remove that intention Disney's gone so like that but I feel like from the early encounters whether in colonialism or more latterly between uh, Western westernized people and uh, this shall be so for simplicity indigenous people it suggests that there is a kind of a generosity of spirit a, a willingness to sort of say look have this this is what you're going to you're going to need this. And I think there's a difference between sort of the, the aim being we could get some lunch boxes out of this and hold on a minute, we could use this to as a new organising principle for to, our to ailing think better with, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's right. It's not It's not that all, and Robin is very good on this, it's not that all, always to, to learn from or take, to, le to learn from is not always to take from. And I think that's, uh, that, you know, maybe if we, if we, if we keep that distinction, the whole the Moana, I mean, there's, as you know, there's a hell of a backstory to that in terms of the way Disney approached the the extraction of that knowledge in those stories. MJ O'Connor Wayfinding um, has got some really, really good pages on um, on what happened there with the with the Pacific uh, star navigation techniques and stories. It's pretty, pretty dismal stuff, really. But yeah, kids, kids love the film. <laughs> How are we as well? You know, one of the things you're English, I suppose. What are we going to do? Robert, about how you see something like this. I can almost, I can feel the sort of uh, the blue collar past and present, the kind of weariness. At like, oh, fucking hell, can't we even watch Moana now? How do we not, you know, like when um, Grayson Perry says, like, you know, we think of anthropology and the study of culture as something that happens elsewhere, but look, look in Sunderland on a Saturday night and see the rituals and, and the dress and the, the carnival, you know, how do you know one of the things that interests me when i say about like uh, the sort of uh, remystification the spiritualization what uh, vandana shiva would call the sacralizing once more of you know nature and exchange etc like 
given that we're having this conversation in this country, given what's sort of happened in the last five, ten years post two thousand and eight in both uh, you know in, in America, England, most ang- you know, anglophonic countries, but broadly speaking, everywhere, even uh, either a kind of a glib, hollow, empty liberalism or a rampant, retroactive, balmy nationalism. How do the what do we do to uh, re-engage? And reconnect with, uh, let's say, that the kind of people that might fall prey to more slovenly myth, if we don't um, present them with something better. Wow, that's a that's a little question for me. Isn't it? <laughs> so we're near the end of the interview. Yeah, yeah. Uh, d- few discuss. Soft balls. Yeah, that's that's my exam question for twenty twenty one. Um, I, I, I don't, Well, look, one thing I can say is that I think much of I think I'm right to say that tens of millions of people in this country um, needed nature in the last 18 months more than they've ever known they needed it before. And, uh, you know, that first spring of the lockdown, um, the, 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 the deep drink of green, the, the deep um, dive into birdsong, you know, people who hadn't heard this stuff and hadn't cared about this stuff, suddenly it became it became like breathing. It was just vital to have something there, that walk in the park, that, you know, the opening of the window. Uh, and I think there was a good there. There was a real good sense. Um, and then when, when lockdown ended for the first time and people just rushed for space and solitude and some of them trashed it, and but but there was just this hunger for it. And I think in that impulse, which was damaging in some ways, there's something, there was something wonderful there was a recognition that there is a need here and a, a, and a love just for, you know, the walk on the beach, holding the hand of the person you love, the walk along the clifftops, the drive to the park. I don't know. Am I being naive? I just sort of, what could be, what could we need more than, than, than a, than a bird and a, than a bird in a tree? Why do you think we are as a culture refusing the lesson that this pandemic might appear to be presenting why is the the tacit and sometimes overt agenda to return to normal rather than to kind of it's almost like we've forgotten the code we've forgotten the mechanism to even interpret events to even go oh well this thing's happened what does what are we being told what are we being told it's like we don't know how to read the runes no more we don't. I mean, uh, I'm a, I spend a lot of time writing about some of the oldest stories in the world, Gilgamesh, the Kalevala, Beowulf, Gawain and the Green Knight. They're all warning stories. But, we, we, you know, some of them, Gilgamesh comes from 4,000 years ago. Uh, we, we, we know it because we dug up, because uh, uh, an Iraqi, uh, as it would be now archaeologists, called uh, uh, Hormuz Rassam, in fact, dug up a bunch of clay tablets in the mid-19th century near Mosul. And these carried a 4,000-year-old story written in cuneiform. And that is the story that tells us not to deforest the world because we'll let loose hell upon our heads. It's the oldest story we have. And what happens is that Gilgamesh and Enkidu, these two top, kind of basically toxically masculine figures, bad rulers, uh, you know, the sort of Boris Johnson meets Silvio Berlusconi meets <laughs> Bolsonaro of their day in, in Gilgamesh. And I don't know what Enkidu so they They go to the sacred cedarwood there is a guardian spirit there, which is all we've been talking about, about animism, about the, the spirit, the living spirit of the wild world. And what do they do? They systematically strip the seven auras of the wild world, one by one, through through a kind of brutal, reifying ritual each time. 
Then they go in there. He doesn't have any auras left, so they kill him, cut his head off, and then they cut the forest down uh, using their big axes so they can make a nice door for their temple. And it's like... This is a four thousand year old warning, <laughs> and if we and we're still not hearing it, uh, uh, it's the it's the kind of pandemic in a parable. <laughs> discovered, and it, those tablets were discovered uh, under the earth, buried under uh, the earth, buried in the desert, unearthed from the sand, lost in a lost in a library uh, from from thousands of years, Ashburnipal's library, thousands of years ago. And you're doing something with Johnny Flynn, the actor, and evidently, yeah, musician also, isn't he? Is that true? What are you doing? Yeah, we've, we've put an album together, yes, over the last year. Yeah, and it's, I mean, I wrote about the Epic of Gilgamesh in, in Underland, so it's full of, uh, so I've been, I've been steep deep in, in Gilgamesh, but we just, um, we just started writing songs and, um, yeah, made an album. <laughs> well, I'm going to give you some coaching on promo now, Robert. Oh right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> how, how, how does it go? How do, what, what do we? Do, what do I do? You don't intone. You don't have a downward intonation <laughs> of casual dismissiveness and boredom around oh, your Gilgamesh project. Symbols. <laughs> a little symbols. bit of rallying, uh, yeah. A little bit. Picture yourself. You're at the top of Everest. It's been okay. a hell of a trek. Several <laughs> Sherpa lay dead from malnutrition <laughs> at your feet. You kick them aside. What have they ever done for you lately? <laughs> and now you stand there at the summit in Sir Edmund Hillary. Is that the right guy? <laughs> in his socks, waving a flag of some nation or another. In his <laughs> socks. <laughs> That's promo, baby. Um, no, <laughs> I'm just teasing you for a laugh. Um, yeah. <laughs> That's good. I really like that. The one of the things I'm most, the, one of the many things that stayed with me from Underland. I know you've written loads of books, and I'd probably be a bit annoyed if one person only knew one bit of my work. When no, you've got such a successful mind. body of work behind you, and I'll read it, I promise. But like, uh, like, uh, I like um, the idea that anything that's under the ground, it's either because we don't ever want to see it again, or because we yep. revere it so deeply, we want to protect it forever. I wouldn't mind asking a bit more about that, and I also want to know a bit more about that owl and that cast iron box thing all oh, right cool there's the owl i'll show you the owl yeah um yeah we, we 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 what we love and wish to save and what we hate and fear and wish to lose that's that's basically the the two great tasks of the underland so what what we love are people people who've died who've, who've been close to us it, it's still a kind of I know it's you know burial traditions are changing and cremation and ashes into the air and 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 into the water and all the rest of it. it's a slightly different kind of interment but you know for for tens of thousands of years as a species and and all the way back to Homo nadalensis it looks like we've been burying our dead in the earth so we we have a place to go back to on the surface where we know the loved ones live and rest um uh, there's a there's a there's a there's a deep symbolic return. It's a metaphor we live by, to to borrow that phrase. Um, and I just that just fascinates me. Um, but we also shove into the underworld the stuff we hate, and that might be people as well. You know, brutal executions and killings in the Second World War, or the, in the Feuerwehr, these uh, these limestone sinkholes. It's a place to get rid of stuff. Uh, we put our nuclear waste underground, or we would if we were decent enough. Uh, civilizations to be able to dig a big hole and keep it safe for ten thousand years, but we can't even do that very well. So, um, and uh, we and then we go into extract. I guess that's the other thing: take the minerals, take the metaphors, take the knowledge. Um, so to 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 yield, uh, to to shelter and save and to dispose of. 
I think I, I would like to go for some uh, for a for a walk, please, or a climb. I'm up for that. So up for that. Yeah, I'd love to go on that walk, stroke, climb, and uh, there's so many things, so many moments, the things that you see. I would like to have that experience. Well, I'd be totally up for that. We'll get we'll get up a mountain uh, or a hill. Um, the two aren't that far apart, and um, yeah, perhaps I'm, let's, I'm... let's start with the post office. <laughs> 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 All right, we'll work up. We'll, we'll graduate. <laughs> thank you, thank you very much, Robert. I really, really, really enjoyed uh, reading your work, and I've really enjoyed listening oh. to you and your uh, your generosity and your graciousness and your um, eloquence with language. It's so beautiful to read and listen to you. Thank you. It's it's been a massive joy to me. You put me in a wonderful mood at the you know look partway through a pretty pretty hard day. So thank you. It's, you're you're wonderfully generous, inquiring, curious partner in thought thank you for listening to under the skin with me and robert mcfarlane and jenny may finn who was brought to you by (laughs) (laughs) help those what can't help themselves a lovely charity that i do (laughs) there's a little charity i do work with help them what can't help themselves it's a charity that helps them what just can't help themselves perhaps because they're too wretched too frail Frail. <laughs> no, you're not. You're quite strong, aren't you? Yeah, I have skinny arms. So. You've been running? Yeah. I've been doing exercise bike. I've been doing jujitsu. I've been running and I started doing core workout again. What kind of core workout? Sit-ups. And the, the, loads of versions of that. Are you good? I just need to do it more. We've all got to exercise more, haven't we? Let's yeah. face it. Also, hey, come and see me live. Come and see me live. Do my thing. 33, 20 dates around the south of the UK. And if you enjoyed this with the beautiful Robert McFarlane, listen to Nick Hayes, one of my mates. And also listen to Merlin Sheldrake, another of my mates. And listen to, who's my other of my mates? Oh, you've forgotten them already. Hold on, don't criticise me. You've forgotten as well. I know who it is. Who? Bradley Garrett. Give me a clue. Bradley Garrett, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And Jocko Willink as well. And keep checking my YouTube channel for new videos. Thanks for listening to Under the Skin from Luminary. Thank you for listening to Under the Skin Goodbye Thank you for listening to Under the Skin with Russell